Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. God, we want to thank you for this man, and um, directly or indirectly, we'll, we will know already that he's been influential in our congregation, because he's been influential in our lives, and, and Lord, we ask that you be with him. We, we welcome him, Lord, we, we call him part of our whanau, part of our family, um, at least for this evening, and Lord, we just ask that you would you'd use him greatly tonight to share um, what he has with a, a great sense of, of being um, embraced and welcomed and we we thank you for that and so we commit them to you in Jesus name amen thank you, thank you. it's a, that's a beautiful introduction thank you it's um it's special to be here for Mary Ellen and for me Mary Ellen's at the back do you want to wave or something <laughs> and uh this is, I think this is our third time in New Zealand. We're Canadians. We're from Eastern Canada. And, um, and uh, I, I sense some kind of a, of, a, of a mutuality, some kind of a spirit in common here in New Zealand. Uh, Canadian interests and values and, and New Zealand interests and values seem, seem similar to me. And, uh, and maybe it's because um, it's the mouse that sleeps beside the elephant. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's something to that. Um, anyway, uh, um, we, and we so value uh, the people that we've known from this group. So Vic and Fran in particular have been dear, dear friends now, and we just honor you guys as some of the wisest pastors we know. That's what I said this morning, and I, I believe that. And then here we have Jim and Jane. Wonderful. You guys have come and studied with us too. Uh, it's great to see you. And Sandy and Wendy and, and Calvin and... There's probably others. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So it almost feels like old home week. So I want to talk about something a little bit odd tonight. It's probably one of the most difficult passages in Scripture, so why not? I'm, <laughs> I'm only here for a short time. Vic can pick up the pieces. <laughs> um, uh, when you think of uh, friendship, there's often a sense of affection. And I, I love the little prince, the story of the little prince. And so I just found this on the Internet by accident, and I thought it was good to... He was only a fox, like 100,000 other foxes, but I've made him my friend, and now he's unique in all the world. So just uh, there's a sense of affection in friendship. But that's not really what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about uh, a, something that includes affection but goes deeper. So a deep friendship. There are other aspects as well. And I think that the, this most difficult passage is a good place to look. Um, this is Genesis 22. This is the place in the Bible where the God who tells people not to kill asks apparently his best friend at the time, Abraham, to kill his son, whom he waited for, for for many years. Maybe 25 years he was hoping to receive the blessing, the promise that he'd receive from God, that he'd have his own son, he'd have his own heir. And, and, uh, and then after 25 years of waiting, 
he, I think the boy is probably about 13 years old, young man, and, uh, and it's about time uh, suddenly he senses God wants him back. And I, I, sometimes people use this story as a kind of a, a metaphor for something they go through. You know, it's like you build a business. You, you put everything into building something, and then, and then suddenly you sense you're supposed to give it back and, uh, or to give it up somehow. Has, any, has anyone ever gone through anything like that where you felt like you just, you know, you put everything into something, and then, and then it was time to leave it? Yeah. Okay. So let's read the text, and then I'll, I'll just make references to it. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, and he saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood, bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you haven't withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Abraham went, took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. So, it's just the craziest passage of all. Like, what is God doing? Why, why, would, he ask, why would he ask someone that he loves to do something so terrible? Um, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, loved this story. He wrote a book called Fear and Trembling, in which he told the story over and over again, imagining it different ways. And the most horrible of the ways, it's probably the, one that, it's probably the only one I really remember, um, is he has, um, he has Abraham strap Isaac down on the altar and then he has Abraham take the knife and he goes like this and he says do you think that it's God who's told me to do this no it's me I hate you I have always hated you now die I kill you myself and as he plunges the knife into his son's chest he says oh master of the universe let him leave this world hating me and not you so that I may see him again in the world to come you know it's just this is the crazy Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard who has a wonderful imagination, terrible imagination. And he related himself to Abraham. He thought Abraham was the knight of faith, K-N-I-G-H-T. He thought he was a knight of faith. He was a hero. He thought he loves God so much that he can give up the thing that he loves the most and get it back. 
But Kierkegaard felt that he was being asked by God to do something. He thought he was being asked by God to give up the girl that he loved the most in the world, his fiancée, Renée. And he gave her up. But he said, I don't have enough faith to get her back. I am just the knight of resignation. For some reason, I think God wants me to walk alone. And he did that. A kind of a neurotic um, example. (laughs) Brilliant, but neurotic. (laughs) I don't know why they go together. (laughs) Sorry if you're brilliant. And... There's another thing to notice in the story. Do you notice that every time I said, here I am, I really accentuated it? Did you notice that? I did it on purpose. Um, In Hebrew, there's two ways to say um, that you're present. One is uh, po-ani. That means I'm here. It's it's, If you were in a class, if somebody said, are are you here? Fran, are you here? You might say po, here, or po-ani, here I am, and uh, I am here. That means you're here, but it doesn't necessarily tell us what state your brain's in. You, you know, you might be on your cell phone. Um, but there is another way to say, I'm here, here I am. And almost every prophet in the Old Testament has an encounter with God in which he says, Hineni. Hineni means, here I am, front and center, completely present. I am completely here. So that's Hineni, and that's the phrase that's used each time here. It's used when Isaiah gets called. It's used in other places as well. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but you could check. But it's Hineni. It's this incredible word of, I am completely present, Hineni. And so this is a kind of a sacred chapter where we have it these three times, you know. Now, um, what the heck is going on? And, uh, and, and different people have different views. Um, one, some people think this is literally a test for Abraham, and it seems like there's something like that in the, in the text. It says, you know, now I know that you, you, would, you would do anything I asked you to do. So it may be that there's some level of testing going on. Um, some people think that it's a symbolic foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice. There's some really interesting elements. Like Isaac has to walk three days forward into death carrying the wood of the sacrifice on his back. It reminds you of Jesus walking into the crucifixion, the whole three days of death, carrying the wood on his back. Um, the more uh, interesting thing, too, is that it happens at a place called Mount Moriah, and we learn later on in the Old Testament that this is the exact place where the temple will be built. So on the mount of the Lord it will be provided is a foreshadowing of the holiest piece of real estate in the universe, according to this tradition. And, uh, and, and, and later, it's the very place where Jesus will die. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting place to do this. So there's some sort of symbolic foreshadowing of Christ's death. Some people say, maybe it's like God asks his best friend, but doesn't let him go through with it, to do the very thing that he himself will do with his son. I've heard people say that before. Other people, scholars sometimes say that something like this. They say, it's really a big story. It's a mythopoetic story. It's a, way, it's a story that signals that a culture has figured out that child sacrifice is not a good thing. So some people would say, that's what this story is really about. It's, it's the Jews coming to the realization that, that child sacrifice is, is no more. Although I have an other idea. And the reason I have this other idea is because of years and years of... Um, working with students, and also doing pastoral work. And uh, I've just come to see that there's something that happens when you walk with people into their darkest despair or when you go with people into their deepest nightmare. And um, 
In this view, in, it seems to me that the most important verse in chapter 22, the craziest chapter in the whole Bible, is the last verse of chapter 21. The last verse of chapter 21 reads, And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Now, I'm just going to stop and ask you, what reference, what relationship could this have to how I'm interpreting the story? What do you, what do you think, what, what clue does this verse give us about what's going on? Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Say it again. Waiting? Yeah. Oh, waiting. Marinating. Uh, changing, being changed. Sometimes there's a kind of something that happens to us in a waiting process. Okay? But what's another idea? Yeah? Say it again, Owen. Why did God test me like that? You mean he could be thinking that? Is, is that how you're seeing it? Yeah. Why? Why? But this is what happens, though, before. It's, it, I, like, I don't know that he's had any sense already that this is going to happen. That's what I am wondering. Is it possible he's being enculturated? Is it possible that he's beginning to take on the thoughts of the world around him? The Philistines did use child sacrifice. They had the idea that if they gave up things that were precious to them, particularly their children, that they would obtain spiritual power. So maybe he's being enculturated. Maybe he's got an enculturated view of God. You know, sometimes when you look back at these people in the Old Testament, it's almost as like they're perfect heroes, you know. But when you go through Abraham's life, it seems like all the way along, he's getting a rough edge knocked off, just like you and I do. He starts out, it's, it's, it actually begins in Genesis chapter 12. And it says, go now, Abraham, leave, uh, leave your relatives and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you. And it says, and Abraham went with Lot, his relative, <laughs> and with all of his belongings, which is what was known as the father's house. So he, he maybe has partial obedience. It's like he gets a sense God wants to take him somewhere, and he's going, I'd like to go there, but I'm just not sure I can put everything into it. I'm not putting all the chips in that basket. So he starts to walk slowly, and he gets refined little by little as he goes. You know? and, and, and here I think maybe he's getting the most important thing refined. Because maybe he suspects that God is an ogre. Maybe he suspects that God is the kind of God that would give you spiritual power if you'd give up your child. You know, or if you gave up the thing that you loved the most. Maybe he really thinks that God is not for him, but that God is some kind of horrible judge or some kind of, of horrible uh, emperor-like, king-like being. That's what I think. He really, has a, he really suspects that God does not love him. You know? And so I think what God says is, I know what you really think in your heart of hearts. I know what you really think about me. And what I would like to do now is walk with you into your deepest and darkest nightmare. And, and the reason I think this is what's happening is just because this is what we do in pastoral work all the time. When somebody's really hurting, we very often just spend enough time with them until they finally begin to share the thing that's deeply hurting them inside. 
This is an act of deep friendship. Now, there, there are aspects of this story that, you know, are beyond our pay grade. That's the way I say it. Like, I do not think I can manipulate circumstances to make somebody go through a terrible time. Um, but probably, you know, maybe pastors in New Zealand do this sort of thing. <laughs> but there are parts that we can do. And, and we can learn to walk with people while they're going through their difficult moments. And uh, in the Bible, you see things. You see Job. He had friends. They did one thing right. What was that? <laughs> they came and sat for seven days in silence. After that, as soon as they begin to open their mouth, they blow it. And the whole rest of the book is about how bad their advice is. You know, they used stupid ideas about God that all their friends believed to make Job's suffering worse. I, I, do you think that could happen today? <laughs> um, Jesus had friends. And... Uh, yeah, they didn't do very well either when he was struggling in the garden. They, they, were, they just couldn't stay awake. They kept freaking out about the discomfort that his imminent death was causing them. Jesus was a friend, though. I really like the story. There's lots of stories. I like the story about Zacchaeus. That's a good one from my point of view. Um, uh, I read a commentary by a Palestinian uh, Bible scholar, and he said... Um, the story of the prodigal son is not too well understood. He said, I think it's, uh, in, in, in our culture, it hasn't changed so much. And there are things that a man doesn't do. And one of the things in the story is the father runs to the prodigal, prodigal child, the prodigal son, when he's returning. From, uh, and he said, the reason he's running is because this boy or this man has actually offended the entire social structure. And if the father doesn't get there first, he'll be stoned to death. And that makes sense to me. You know, it's not, he hasn't just offended his father by wanting his inheritance early. He's offended the entire social structure. And the father does something that, that no man normally would do in that culture. He just, without any thought of, of his own dignity, he runs. He runs to protect his son. And, and that's what, what Jesus says God is like. And I like the way that he's good, he's able to do this in the Zacchaeus story. He sees a guy that's like Zacchaeus who has feels so much rejection, so much shame as a tax collector. He feels so, like it's almost as though, I don't know, what's, a, what's a, an, a, an occupation that people don't like these days? Parking, uh, parking attended. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what's another one? Tax collector still. Okay, what else? Politician, dentist. Dentist, very good choice. In our culture, we're a little suspicious of politicians and lawyers, pastors. <laughs> so anyway, uh, this guy feels on the social outs, Zacchaeus, and, but he doesn't care because he just knows no one respects him. So he's willing to, without any sense of dignity, get up in a tree because he, he's a man of, of small physical stature. I like him already. And... <laughs> And he, he just, he gets in the tree to see Jesus. You know, he's excited. And Jesus, he, he sees the point of need in the guy's heart. And he says, oh, let's eat at your house today. Because he just, he can understand exactly where, where the guy's not feeling that accepted. And he goes, oh, you're the one. Let's eat at your place. You know, it's just perfect. That's, that's a bit of friendship. And then I, I, I want to do more. So this is the best definition I've ever seen. What, how, maybe I'll take it away. <laughs> how do you define empathy? What's, what's your best definition of empathy? 
Yeah? I think so too. What, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. Yeah. Uh, how else? That's a, that is a very good one. Yeah, Wendy? Empathy is somehow to get close enough that, that you can help to bear the pain. Wow. You're, in that way, you're a bridge or you're a support to them. It's beautiful. This guy named Thomas Oden is, uh, I think, a great scholar. He says, empathy is the ability to imaginatively enter the perceptual framework of the other. What he means is that every human being has a unique way of looking at the world. We all, we all make our own way of looking at the world. Part of it's given, part of it's formed by us. And, and, and if you can get close enough to somebody that you can begin to imagine the world the way that they do, then they feel a tremendous sense of bridging or support. It's not every possible to really get into somebody's healing without this. Does that make sense? You don't have to have experienced what somebody else has experienced, but you have to experience something. <laughs> Most of us are humans. We've experienced something. You have to have experienced something. Uh, how many of you have ever, tr- have, have ever been through a very difficult experience or a very difficult period in your life, and you made the mistake of sharing it with somebody who didn't have very much compassion? Has this ever happened to you? Yeah. Okay. This is something that most of us will do, but most of us won't do it twice. And I think this is because what happens is we, we become, um, it hurts so much when you do this. And I think that we become pretty good at seeing who's a safe port in a storm. I think you can see it in people's countenance. I don't know why or how, but it's if people have suffered, if they've, had, if they've gone through something difficult themselves, there is something that comes out. It's a softness in the eyes and in the face, and then you know this place, this person is safe. I can talk to this person, right? If, if you do it the other way, if, if, if instead you get advice or judgment too quickly, it, it just it breaks your heart. It's just too painful. And by the way, this it's a bit of a tangent, but I think this is actually related to what beauty is. I'm not, I'm not impressed at all with carved features, or Barbie doll looks, um, what I think is beautiful is when the light of the soul authentically shines out through somebody's features. You know, when, when who you really are shines out of you, that is one of the most beautiful things, it seems to me, anywhere. That's the, I think we love to be, when somebody is completely comfortable in their own skin. Um, it, it, it says in the New Testament that people were surprised at Jesus because he had authority and the word actually means out of being, exousia. He spoke out of his being. He spoke authentically out of who he was. Instead of like, um, you know, uh, always, always having to sort of back up everything that you say by saying so-and-so says this too or so-and-so says that. It's just, it was like he surprised people by just being completely authentic and real. And, and I think when you do that, there's a kind of a beauty that just shines through who you are. I think that's what beauty is. So empathy is the ability, I think, to imaginatively enter the perceptual framework of the other. And Odin says, this is a little bit like the Apostles' Creed in Christianity. It's, um, 
you know, we believe in Jesus Christ. This is what we used to, all the ancient Christians used to say. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And Odin says, whenever you are trying to be a friend to somebody who's actually hurting, you go through the same pattern. You, you go down into the hell of their experience, and you hold them there, and then hopefully you might get the privilege of rising with them. You know, every time, this is what deep friendship is. I, I've, I've for years trained pastors in the master's program, and I've, I've had a lot of people come who have said, yeah, yeah, we know what it is like to go into somebody's hell. We don't know what it's like to leave that behind when we go home. That's, that's one of the toughest things about any caregiving job. How do you, how do you leave behind the pain? That's another, another lesson, <laughs> another night's talk. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, wrote a beautiful little book called Life Together. And these are just the subtitles of the second last chapter. And I think he's got the very same flow. Down into the pain, coming up again. He says that the first thing that you do if, you're, if you have a friend who is hurting is you learn how to hold your tongue, step one. The second thing is you learn how to, to be in the situation with humility. In other words, not have a sense of, I know what you should do. The third thing is you listen. One, two, three. Fourth, you go get them a hamburger if they need it. <laughs> Do something practical. So often, really, it's just that you're invaluable if you just, just help. Fifth, if you've done all of this, it may be that they will begin to sense that you are actually doing the thing that Wendy said. You're actually just starting to bear some of their pain. You're such a support to them. You're so close that you're really a support. Seventh, um, maybe if you've done all of that, you might be able to say, isn't this really like what it says in scripture? Or isn't this what, what Oprah said? Or, you know, I mean, you could go to whatever wise source you want, you know, but maybe you get a chance to do the ministry of proclaiming. And every once in a while, I think if you've done all of this, you get to take part in the miracle of helping somebody come forward into life. And I, I would say that that's, it's, it's, this is something to do with authority. It may be almost like being there to recognize the thing that happens as somebody rises. Um, Maximilian Colby said, God sends us friends to be our firm support in the whirlpool of struggle. In the company of friends, we will find our strength, find strength to, to attain our sublime ideal. He is, uh, he's commemorated, as is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at the new facade at Westminster Abbey. Instead of the 12 apostles, they have 12 martyrs from the 20th century from around the world, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, Maximilian Colby gave his, his life in a prison camp. He was a Catholic priest. Uh, Bonhoeffer stood against uh, the rise of Nazism and was put to death. Samuel Coleridge said, love is flower-like, friendship is like a sheltering tree. And I like this one because I have a friend who did this. We have it in our home. Um, a New Brunswick artist, David Hayward, who's also a cartoonist, 
um, did this. And I I love the idea of a, a friend being a sheltering tree. But David also did this. He said, Jesus takes a selfie, looks like this. So we get to be friends to each other. When Jesus takes a selfie, he shines through all of us. And this is all the more true when we're deep friends to one another, when we walk through life's difficulties with people in such a way that we support them through agony until they come to their own awakenings. That's it for me. Should I say a prayer? Father, I just thank you so much that we have this high privilege of being friends to each other, um, that we can do this, that we can learn how to go into the very difficult things that we face and just be the bridge and support, that we can be the, the one that listens, that we can be the one that's there not knowing the answer, that we can be the one who, um, who helps to bear and who does practical things to help, that we can be the one who m- maybe in some in some cases, if we've, if, we've, if we've walked deeply enough into the situation, we'll get a chance to say something. Maybe never, maybe never. But maybe we will. And maybe we'll get to witness the miracle of somebody coming out of something that was very hard for them. So um, I think that's what you did with Abraham. I think you walked with him into his worst dream. And I think that you showed him that, he, that you are not the person that he feared you were. And um, I, think, I think it's still true. I think we still suspect sometimes that you are um, an ogre, that you, that you really are not for us, and that you don't love us. And, uh, and I pray that in all the ways that we need, that you'll disarm us too, that you'll, um, that, you'll be, that you'll go through an act of deep friendship with us that will help us to see that you really love us. And I pray that we'll be strong to do that for others. Thanks. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.